0: Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bellati. Hope you all had a fun-filled Memorial Day weekend. Maybe like me, you had one too many hard seltzers, mixies, high noons, maybe some beer. I just like was like, let me just see how many different substances I can put in my body. And then I'm gonna to try to wear heels and stand on the table in the living room and sing Dua Lipa. So that was my weekend in a nutshell. <laughs> had a lovely time in the Hamptons with my friend Adam and his school friends. We rented the cutest house and honestly, 10 out of 10 weekend, but it's definitely taking me some time to recover this week and get back to business. But lucky for me, this week's episode comes from a lot of research this past weekend because today's episode is about the mixed drink, about the cocktail, about the history surrounding these things and the women that inspired them. So I might as well have just stayed in the Hamptons on that table with a drink in my hand because it was just, it was research. Okay. It was all research. I love saying that. You know, like, okay, I was like doing this crazy thing, but it's just research for my memoir. Okay. Um, but anyway, I hope you guys had a fun-filled weekend. Maybe you too had you know a few too many mixies, a few too many spike seltzers. But even if you did, today's tale will just it'll interest you because if not for the women I'll be telling you guys about today, women in general wouldn't have one of the most important rights, in my opinion that we have, which is a lady's right to day drink. And this really shouldn't surprise you if you know anything about women's history, even the slightest bit. But women as a whole and alcohol really weren't, for a very long time, a readily accepted combination. So today we're gonna talk about the loud ones, the rule breakers, the party throwers, the people that are responsible for the boozy brunches of today. We'll be talking about the mysterious history of cocktail parties, three martini lunches, and what it was like to drink as a single woman in America for much of history. But before we take things back in time, let's talk about something that happened a little bit more recently. To me (laughs) so three weeks ago i was sitting in this bar on the east side of manhattan i'm gonna give a little three second pause you guys can guess what drink i was consuming in this said bar three two one obviously a dirty martini so I'm sitting there and I'm I'm on a date and I wouldn't say it was a bad date. It also wasn't a great date. It was just kind of like one of those, smart, you know, mediocre kind of like, all right, I'm here. They're here. It's not bad. It's not good. Will we kiss at the end? Probably not. But you know what? On the bright side, I had a really great martini in front of me. So give me a mediocre date, but a really great martini and I'm OK. I'm fine. I'll sit there for one, maybe two. Here's some interesting stories. Go on with my life. It was all fine and dandy. And I kept actually sneaking some glances at the bartender because we were sitting really close to the bar and the bartender guys was absolutely killing it. Like, first of all, my martini was lovely. Second of all, he was just like pounding through making all these drinks. Like he had a shaker in his hand, he'd garnish like multiple different garnishes in the other. And he was like pumping out like something like four drinks at once. This guy was carrying the bar and I was just entranced by it all, like really thinking about what goes into making a cocktail and how honestly inspired I am by bartenders everywhere for remembering all the nitty gritty ingredients that goes into each cocktail. Like, tell me, is there like a little sticky note behind the bar with like this plus this equals gin and tonic, this plus this? I mean, gin and tonics are pretty simple, I feel like, but there's some like really interesting kind of you know, nitty gritty details involved in some drinks that I just really will never get right myself. I've tried my hand at making drinks at home. And honestly, the only ones that I've been able to nail are obviously dirty martinis because I know how I like them. So I guess for my taste. And then also espresso martinis have been pretty simple for me to make at home. So anyway, mediocre date, great drinks, got the gears turning about the history surrounding the mixed drink, especially in the hands of women. Drinking them in public, in crowded bars, on boats, in frat basements, hotel rooms, clubs. These are all the places that I have had a cocktail in my hand at one point or another. It's really something. you know. Our story today is interesting for so many reasons because it honestly wasn't all that long ago that women just were not allowed to drink in public. So when did things change? Who was at the helm of this change? I think the best place for our story to begin is within the pages of an 1860 etiquette guide. You heard me right. The Ladies' Book of Etiquette and Manual of Politeness. So this book, it gave ladies of the time advice on how to act properly in society. And there was a whole section on drinking that I read and was appalled by. So we're going to read a few of these sections today. And I just, again, appalled. Okay. You need not fear to offend by refusing to take wine with a gentleman, even your host. If you decline gracefully, he will appreciate the delicacy which makes you refuse. So keyword, delicacy, because a woman is just so delicate and cute if she refuses wine. Okay. If, however, you have no conscientious scruples and are invited to take wine, Bow and nearly raise the glass to your lips and set it down again. You may thus acknowledge the courtesy and yet avoid actually drinking the wine. Okay, so let me get this straight. If you refuse to take wine with a gentleman, even your host, if you decline, he'll be like, "Okay, this girl is so delicate and so sweet and so womanly. But if you want to take the wine, you take it, put it up to your lips, don't actually drink it, and put it back down. And like, Okay. Wow. You're crazy. Really living life on the edge, huh? Okay. Carrying on. No lady should drink wine at dinner. Even if her head is strong enough to bear it, she will find her cheeks soon after the indulgence flushed, hot, and uncomfortable. And if the room is warm and the dinner is a long one, she will probably pay the penalty of her folly by having a headache all the evening. So I guess we can't tell the women of 1860 about my two martinis a few weeks ago at, <laughs> at dinner on the state, or maybe about the, I don't even know how many mixed drinks I had this past weekend, because these girls couldn't even have a glass of wine at dinner without scrutiny or a debilitating headache or something. Like someone get these girls some help. But anyway, so this was published in 1860. But even a hundred years later in 1969, a woman's right to drink alcohol in public, especially in daylight hours, was in super rocky territory, which is kind of shocking to me. Like 1969 doesn't feel like a really long time ago. But things were so different back then. In early February of 1969, a woman named Betty Friedan and 15 other feminists entered the Oak Room of the Plaza Hotel in New York City. Like many other hotel bars and restaurants of the time, the Plaza excluded women during weekday lunch hours from noon until three. And here's the reason why that just infuriates me, okay? The reason why women were not allowed was so they didn't distract
1: or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.
0: I read this book actually a few years ago called Three Martini Lunch. Or maybe it was last summer that I read this book, but it's called Three Martini Lunch and it's by Suzanne Rindell. And it's a really great read if you enjoy old, mysterious stories of places like New York City. But while researching, I just instantly remembered the concept of this book, um, or the concept that it's named after, which is the three martini lunch. And essentially, a three martini lunch was, well, sounds like my type of heaven, I guess, if I have nowhere to be. Three martinis is definitely an undertaking. But essentially what it was and what it is, a three martini lunch was a luxurious midday activity for businessmen, keyword men. And here's a description from an article published in the 50s. They called it a, quote, phenomenon confined to lunchers living in larger cities who either work in the financial districts or belong to the lighter minded of the professions. In an article published by Forbes, they say the three martini lunch was deeply male. This was not the sort of midday meal consumed by, quote, ladies who lunch. It was a men's meal associated with men's work in male workplaces martinis business deals men being men this was the culture of places like new york city in this time period still is to a certain extent however women are these days increasingly being invited to the table which is nice not overwhelmingly though you know there's still progress to be made but increasingly but anyway back to our feminists storming the plaza in the 60s during the three martini lunch hour So the women walked right past the host, didn't even pause to give them the time of day, walked right past the host into the Oak Room, gathered around a table. And, you know, it's likely that businessmen were looking on in horror over their three martini glasses, you know, staring at them so distracted by these women. And they held up these signs that said, wake up, Plaza, get with it now. And the Oak Room is outside the law. And the waiters essentially just refused to serve the women and silently removed their table, like picked up their table apparently and walked away with it. They were like, absolutely not. And so shortly after the women stormed the plaza, lots of, you guessed it, men had some things to say, some choice words to say about why women shouldn't be allowed in these sorts of environments, like just why it was just not feasible for women to be allowed to drink in the daytime during their lunch hour. According to an article that I'll link called No Unescorted Women Will Be Served by Sasha Cohen, some suggested that women lacked the ability to calculate the check and tip correctly. Are you kidding me? That bar crowds were too rough and boisterous for them, or that male-only spaces were sacred, sacred I can't even say this with a straight face. Sacred for politics and sports talk, where men could share, quote, lewd stories or, quote, have a quiet beer and tell a few jokes. And one Connecticut state representative even claimed that a bar was the only place a man could go and, quote, not be nagged. But Betty and her friends made some headway. And soon after they put pressure on the plaza, many similar establishments lifted their daytime drinking rules for women. So we can say a little thank you to Betty for the ladies' right to day drink. But let's take things back a bit. After all, the plaza incident was in the 60s. And don't be fooled. It didn't take women this long to realize that, you know, a few martinis could be fun. So obviously there was some underground stuff going on. To get the full story, we have to go back a bit further. Let's start with the parties, particularly the exclusive underground ones, because basically everything that eventually catches on as being something cool and exciting starts underground. The true history of America's first cocktail parties can be traced back to one woman in particular. The opposite of the typical soft-spoken housewives of the time, a woman named Miss Clara Bell Walsh was a force to be reckoned with. And we can thank Clara for popularizing cocktail parties in America. After all, she did throw the very first one, which we'll get to. So Miss Clara Bell Walsh was a Kentucky-born heiress and socialite. She was born in 1884, raised an only child in Lexington, Kentucky, but her family spent winters in New York City. This was where she attended school, and she ended up spending a lot of her married life in St. Louis, Missouri as well. So she was kind of all over the place. Clara's childhood home, Bell Place, was one of Lexington's largest residencies. And after her father died, she inherited a sizable trust fund. And by the time Clara took control of her trust at just 21, she was a very, very, very wealthy young woman at just 21. In that same year, she actually got married. She married Julius Sylvester Walsh Jr., son of one of St. Louis's chief capitalists and railroad men. It wasn't for love, it was just for business as Claire's grandfather and father had established the business ties in Missouri with this family years before she was even born. The wedding took place in her childhood home and apparently two whole rooms in the estate were filled from floor to ceiling with wedding gifts, including the deed to a farm And a case of silver from her in laws. This might sound super classic for the time, just give you all you need to know about Clara, and that's it. But honestly, let's just get one thing clear Clara was anything but conventional for her time. Here's a few examples of just even at a young age, how Clara was definitely a little against the grain. After her wedding, she climbed into a plain one horse carriage, and an avid horseback rider took the reins herself, not her husband but she did. She took the reins herself and led the horse through town to stop at a nearby hospital to hand deliver all of the floral bouquets from her ceremony. She took the reins herself, guys. She was a strong woman. This was the early 1900s. So, women just like didn't do things like that for themselves in this time period. Also, so her her husband Julius got arrested less than a year into her marriage, which obviously, red flag. He was arrested after getting into a fist fight with a railroad conductor, which not really sure how that happened, but Clara did not just sit back and let it happen. She hunted down the mayor, dragged the mayor guys into a police station and convinced him to free her husband. Clara was definition of not sitting back and letting her life just happen to her. She definitely was a woman with goals, with Things she wanted to do, and she really knew how to get things done. So, naturally, though, she wasn't really happy in this arranged marriage. And she was a super strong-willed, independent woman. And so, she would eventually just take matters into her own hands and cut her husband off, but not for a little while. First, Clara would fall in love with someone new, or I suppose, someplace new. She would leave St. Louis for New York and become the first resident of. You guessed it, the Plaza Hotel, her next true love. So things in our story are coming a little full circle here, guys. The Plaza Hotel in New York opened its doors in October of 1907, and as soon as they opened the door, Clara moved right in. She was the first name on the register. A man named Fred Steery was the hotel manager at the time, and he was actually an old friend of Clara's from childhood, hence how she was able to be first in line in the hotel. So just a few weeks before her death, she actually wrote this article, which I'll have linked and I'll reference throughout the rest of the story. She was a beautiful writer. And so Clara actually, you know, her, her words are going to be found throughout this story. So she said, quote, to me, the plaza is an oasis of calm, dignified elegance right in the center of the most exciting city in the world. Merely by moving through the huge bronze torches at the entrance of the plaza, I can partake in the fast moving, stimulating world outside. When I want to withdraw and rest, I accomplish this by simply stepping back into the peaceful haven of what I think is the best hotel in the world. In 1923, Clara did something pretty shocking for the time. She filed for divorce from her husband, Julius. And listen up, this is the most legendary part. After the divorce in 1923, she actually referred to her husband, Julius, as deceased. Although many accounts I found online said, He actually died in 1929. So either our girl Clara was quite petty or perhaps he really did die in 23. I'm not really sure. But anyway, she was like, my husband's dead. I don't need him. And she didn't even miss a beat in her social calendar after her divorce. Mind you, again, this is the 20s. It was not extremely acceptable to be a divorced person, let alone to do the divorcing. So again, Clara, a little bit different. So Clara's daily routine in the city was pretty enviable back then and certainly now. She was gifted in horseback riding, as I said, and she would ride her horse out in Central Park each morning. In the afternoon, she would invite over her posse, which included big names from Broadway, spanning even into the realms of famous world wrestlers and politicians alike. Clara had three distinct hobbies, horseback riding, cocktail drinking, and entertaining. She was definition of the independent woman. A wealthy divorcee, she was afraid of very few things, especially controversy, as she regularly disregarded the rules of the plaza by welcoming prominent minority figures and friends to her suite, let alone just partying, especially during times of prohibition and just completely disregarding any rule the plaza had. She was just like, you know, with a wave of the hand inviting all these people to her seventh floor suite in the hotel. And at nighttime, she threw legendary parties with upwards of 200 guests each night. If only the walls of her hotel room could talk, I'm sure they would have a lot to say, a lot of wild things, a lot of wild stories to tell. And her residency within the plaza became a well-known place of refuge, especially as many of the parties took place during Prohibition era, which started in 1920. So people went there to drink under the table. But as I said earlier, I didn't just make this up. Clara did throw the very first cocktail party in published history. And this was back in 1917. And there's this clipping that I have from the Tacoma Times, which was published on April 17th, 1917, about the first string of cocktail parties that Clara threw back in St. Louis. I'm going to read it to you. So it says, positively, the newest stunt in society is the giving of, quote, cocktail parties. The cocktail party is a Sunday matinee affair, which originated here. Mrs. Julius S. Walsh, so Clara, a leader in social activities, is responsible for the innovation. (laughs) The innovation, guys. Mrs. Walsh introduced it last Sunday with the first cocktail party in society's history. Invitations were issued to 50 people. The guests were divided into two classes, those who went to church in the forenoon and those who devoted their time to a motor promenade of the boulevard. Unclear what that means. Then at high noon, they gathered at the Walsh home on Lindell Boulevard. The party scored an instant hit. Mrs. Walsh's home is equipped with a private bar. Around this, the guests gathered and gave their orders to a white-coated professional drink mixer who presided behind the polished mahogany. If a woman guest who had been driving all forenoon in her limousine and was a little chilled in consequence felt the need of a drink with an extra kick in it, she ordered a Sazerac cocktail. Others, of course, preferred a Bronx or a Cloverleaf, and a few who had been to church were old-fashioned enough to order a martini or a Manhattan. I guess that's me. And as long as the professional drink mixer They're calling the bartender a professional drink mixer. I guess bartender wasn't a word in 1917, but okay, the article continues. And as long as the professional drink mixer was there to fill all orders, other beverages than cocktails were in demand highballs, some with scotch and some with rye or bourbon whiskey, gin fizzes ordered because the spring morning hinted of coming summer, and at least one mint julep for a former gentleman of Virginia were handed out over the private bar. The cocktail party, filling a long-felt Sunday want in society circles in that the party in which Mrs. Walsh was hostess was so merry and so jolly as to approach in hilarity the famous early morning eggnog parties popular decades ago. (laughs) Eggnog parties so old, so old-fashioned is vouched for by the newspapers. In the meantime, Mrs. Walsh, because of her innovation, has become more of a social celebrity in St. Louis than ever. So picture this, guys. The very first boozy brunch cocktail party situation in published history was on on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. And it, I'm just going to reread this. It filled a long-felt Sunday want in society circles, So basically what they're saying here is like people went to church and they wanted to like get drunk afterwards. Essentially these men and women of society, these rich people in St. Louis and I guess kind of all over had this deep rooted desire to get the the friends together, get everyone together in this rich person's house and pour up some drinks, see what happens. Like that's kind of what they were all striving to do. And I guess it just took one woman's Boldness to to be the first host hostess I guess hostess with the mostest and just get the whole game together and do it and from there just hope that you're cool enough to have the newspapers report on it in a positive light like that article was overwhelmingly positive you know for sure people in town were reading that article and being like you know these people are crazy the women are so out there and so like they were basically probably you know, talking a lot of smack in town, the people that were reading this article that weren't invited because there's only 50 people invited guys to this elite first cocktail party in St. Louis. So you can imagine there's a lot of like Debbie Downers out there upset. They didn't get the invite or upset that society is going in this direction of women and men drinking together in the daytime on a Sunday. Like you can imagine people weren't overwhelmingly happy about this But you know what? Clara and her posse of elite friends didn't seem to care all that much. They would go on to have many more parties where that came from, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But back to Clara and her impact. So she obviously was the first person she pioneered the co ed cocktail party where mixed drinks were flying. And it wasn't just, you know, the typical wine and certain very like specific. Liquors. It was mixies. It was martinis. It was getting things really going and creative and having these professional drink mixers around. This was totally like a trailblazing activity. Okay. And now, like all these years later, it's just kind of the norm. Like try finding, I mean, granted, there are places like I remember going to this dinner place or lunch dinner place a few weeks ago and they only served beer and wine. And you can imagine my dismay because I was really hoping for a dirty martini. No surprise there. I was really hoping for a nice cocktail after a long Wednesday or whatever day it was. And they were like, sorry, ma'am, we only serve beer and wine. And I was like appalled. The audacity. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm being kind of sarcastic. Like it was fine. I got like a glass of Cabernet and all was well. But we're so used to having cocktails be the norm for those of us out here who are of age and all. But... It wouldn't be that way, especially for women drinking in the daytime at that without people like Clara. And now it's the norm. Now we have, you know, mixies all over the place. We have hard seltzers. We have, you know, juice, like everything you could possibly think of to mix with liquor. We're doing it now. So back to the article, the last line in the article. First of all, I don't think I said that the title, the headline of this article was cocktail parties are new society stunt. (laughs) <laughs> so the last sentence one more time mrs walsh because of her innovation has become more of a social celebrity in st louis than ever <laughs> ladies and gentlemen the first boozy brunch on record 1917 i'm imagining the parties that i threw back in college like i used to throw these parties in my college house and i'm laughing to myself thinking about like the elon university newspaper publishing a story about like the grimy frap sorority frat parties that I threw and was like, this is a revolutionary act. Like, look at this revolutionary thing. Katie Bilotti with her fraternity cooler filled with a plastic bag, mimosa, plastic cups everywhere. She is an innovator, that one. Clara naturally acquired quite the reputation for being a leader in society activities. And I found some sources that talked about one of the staple themed parties that she would throw quite often. And it was called A baby party. A baby party, true to its name, involved Clara and her friends dressing up in baby outfits. And by baby outfits, I mean they were kind of like sexy, okay? Like Clara, the one that she wore often was white lingerie with a blue baby's bow in her curly hair. According to a source that I found, guests had to maneuver through an obstacle course, climbing up a ladder and sliding down a board, so kind of like a slide, I guess, like a playground slide, to reach the bartender who served the martinis in a baby bottle. After this string of St. Louis parties, Clara set up shop in the plaza, and over the years, she hosted thousands upon thousands of guests for private parties in her suite. A newspaper clipping from the time said this of Clara, quote, The famed Clara Bell of Kentucky, who knows more about horses than any other woman in America, and so much about society, that society wishes she would be stricken with a loss of memory. So like, she's definitely just heard a ton of stories. Like I said, if the walls of her suite could talk, I'm sure if she was still alive to tell some of the crazy things she was told in confidence, you know, under the influence of alcohol and all these cocktails and things. Yeah, so I'm sure a lot could be said. If you've ever seen Breakfast at Tiffany's, I kind of equate Clara's Plaza Hotel parties in my mind to be a bit similar to Holly Golightly's like packed apartment party. If you YouTube a video of it or if you know the movie well, it's the one where, I mean, I have a distinct memory of this drunk woman, like, laughing and crying to herself in the mirror, like, as she's drinking. She's like, there's, like, a distinct scene from that. Like, this woman is so drunk that she's just, like, staring at herself in the mirror, laughing to herself, and then... There's the, the part where like Holly almost lights someone's hat on fire with her cigarette. And there's just like, it's like totally packed. They're all packed in this apartment. Everyone's so drunk and so rich and so decked out and all these crazy outfits. Like that's what I imagine Clara's Plaza Hotel parties were like. Clara said, quote, I remember one night I was coming from the dining room of the Plaza when Jimmy Walker spotted me. And Jimmy Walker was the mayor of New York City in the 20s, by the way. And again, this is during Prohibition. So when drinking alcohol was literally illegal, and this is the mayor of New York City, okay? I just want to back things up a little bit. And Clara said he yelled, hey, what are you doing? I told him I was going upstairs and asked him to come up for a drink. Mayor of New York City, gives no fucks, goes upstairs to the party. To give you an idea of Clara's parties, it was kind of like a lawless ordeal, it seems like. And Clara passed away around the age of 72. She apparently never would tell people her age, like reporters or anyone that was like interviewing her. She would just really never disclose her age. So her friends say she was about 72 when she passed away. And her obituary is honestly pretty iconic. Here's what the last line of her obituary says. It says, Mrs. Walsh was a tall, heavily built woman. She ate whatever she liked, drank Kentucky bourbon straight, and said whatever she thought. And here's the headline. It said, Clara Bell Walsh, society hostess dies. Plaza resident 50 years gave big parties. (laughs) Like I hope my obituary, the headline says something about like gives big parties. Like, wow. Hostess with the mostest. Talk about it. So let's talk timeline for a second. So Clara gave the first boozy brunch, first cocktail party In 1917. And then it was kind of bad timing because Prohibition hit in the 20s, although it obviously didn't really put a damper on her parties. But while Prohibition wasn't amazing PR for day drinking, especially day drinking with women, it certainly didn't stop our girl Clara from throwing these booze fueled ragers in her plaza suite. And if anything, Prohibition actually helped lift a bit of the negative stigma. Surrounding women and drinking for a short time, since many of the underground parties were co ed. And so, you know, things were kind of crazy. Morals were out the window, and women were kind of allowed to drink in peace. But it was pretty short lived, according to a source that I found that I'll link, because during wartime and the years that followed the war, to go to a bar as a single woman meant you had to have your character and morals deeply questioned. It's almost like things kind of went backwards. And this takes us back to our earlier story about Betty and her friends rallying for a woman's right to drink publicly during the day without male companions. Sounds like my typical Saturday. I don't know about you, but in the 50s, politicians and the press orchestrated this campaign against what they called, quote, B-girls or bar girls. And these were names given to women who, quote, solicited drinks from male bar patrons using flirtation and the implied promise of sexual intimacy or companionship. Again, sounds like my typical Saturday. I'm just kidding, but not. By the 60s, women could find a few select places to go for a drink in some parts of the U.S., but for the most part, bars remained closed to them. One woman who protested the exclusion of women in bars marched around the city with a sign that read, quote, Women who drink cocktails are not all prostitutes. In the 60s, women, even when they were in fact accompanied by men, so kind of seemingly an an okay ordeal, like, okay, the woman is with a man, she could still be kicked out of a restaurant bar for just wearing pants. (laughs) In August 1966, New York Times story said, quote, Pants, tailored or formal, and the women in them are being greeted with less than enthusiasm by the men who run many of the city's leading hotels and restaurants. One restaurant in particular declared that pants on women were no more appropriate than swimsuits. Guys, swimsuits do not equal pants. (laughs) One woman noted that it was easier to get into a restaurant during this time wearing lingerie than pants. She said that she was turned away for wearing a pinstriped pantsuit, but allowed in when she wore a lacy black slip. Okay. Sounds a little backwards. A manager of our friend Clara's beloved Plaza Hotel was quoted as saying, pants are pants, and if women wear them, they'll be asked to leave. I just can't get over this. Guys, this was the 60s. This was like, what, 60-ish years ago? But like my parents, my mom was born in 1966. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 66. So her parents like had to deal with this, like my grandparents that are, they've passed away, but isn't it wild that this was a thing, like not too long ago. And now like we're able to wear whatever we want. And like, it's just so interesting to me how, how time has changed. And yet again, it still hasn't because there's still stigmas surrounding, you know, girls and women drinking, but thank God far less than there used to be thanks to bold women like clara and betty and just a lot of women that are unnamed in this story but just isn't it crazy this is just food for thought the next time you guys go out and day drink just count your lucky stars your blessings that we are even allowed to do that we're even allowed to go to a restaurant in the middle of the day on a saturday and order a mimosa like back in the 60s that wasn't allowed isn't it wild isn't it wild so, guys, that is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I loved talking to you guys today about a lady's right to day drink. We've certainly come a long way from that etiquette book I read in the beginning about, you know, hold the wine up to your lips, but don't actually drink it because, you know, it's like a forbidden substance. Who knows how it's going to affect you? It'll make your cheeks all red, and who wants that? We've gone we've you know we've come a long way from that and I'm I'm really proud of us us drinking ladies. Of course, be sure to drink responsibly. Responsibly, I can never say that word. Um it kind of goes without saying, but yeah. Cheers everyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I will talk to you all next week. Bye. <music>